In today's episode of VFM, we are talking to Australia's First Minister for Superannuation, Nick Sherry. everybody and welcome to the 46th episode of VFM and as ever I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host Darren Philp. Darren how are you? I'm really good Nico how are you? Um, yeah you're, you're, you're in the travels aren't you? I am yeah I'm out in uh, out in Dubai for COP and um, so I'm yeah I've, I flew from minus something in Heathrow early on Monday morning to plus 30 here in Dubai so nice. uh, yeah nice. it's hard to pack for those kind of transitions. <laughs> I'm recording this via Microsoft Teams and I've got two um, very smart looking gentlemen in front of you uh, but rumour has it that you look you're wearing shorts Nikkei. I am yeah so I've opted for the shirt on top shorts underneath uh, for for the conference so uh, I, this is not just because I'm kind of relaxing in the hotel it's uh, right. <laughs> it's also my style that I'm going to rock at uh, our planet's greatest hope for uh, you know our grandchildren. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And and you say it's 46. This is our 46 mm. episode, but we all know that actuaries can't count, don't we? Um, yeah, absolutely. Routinely so, proven. I went to I went to uh, a restaurant with five actuaries the other day, and we had to split the bill, and it, we, we dragged out the calculators. It was uh... <laughs> <laughs> actually it's our fiftieth episode. If you include our specials, yeah, we've now done fifty episodes. So, wow. you know, um, if it wasn't so early in the morning, we're recording on Tuesday at seven thirty. Um, we'll be cracking open the champagne. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and and speaking of champagne and delight, who have we <laughs> yeah. got today, Nico? So delighted to have Nick Sherry on. Uh, so Nick uh, was the former Minister for Superannuation and uh, Senator for Tasmania in the Australian government. Uh, Nick, welcome. Welcome. What brings you to wintry Britain um, to talk to us well, about pensions? <laughs> well, um, I'm a regular visitor. I, I come back to uh, to England and London usually once a year, focusing on pensions. I've been doing that for uh, about uh, 35 years now, mm. but I was actually born in London too, so I also take the opportunity to catch up with family and some old friends as well as uh, exchange views and perspectives on Australia and UK pension superannuation, we call it in Australia. So yeah. um, always interesting to be back. So, you're so, most most welcome. Did, did did I hear that? Yeah, of course you're most welcome. But did I hear that right, Nick? Are you you're a, f- a fake Australian? <laughs> Is that what you just admitted to? I was I was born in Kingston on Thames. Um, my dad was Australian, mum was right. English, and they went back to um, uh, they were planning to go back to Sydney, Australia, and um, mum discovered she was expecting and i was born in kingston on thames um but other than that i'm a dinky die aussie so so so, so more, it's more an accidental brit then than a, a fake australian <laughs> accidental brit and in fact, i had to renounce my uk citizenship because i was 
obviously born here. I had UK citizenship. I had to renounce it in order to be a member of the Australian Parliament. Oh. <laughs> That's so good, goodbye, goodbye, Britain. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Uh, but, but we'll talk a bit about your parliamentary career and, and what you're up to now um, a bit later. Um, but we start with the news, Nick. Um, what have you got for us? Nick or Nico? Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh dear, Nico, Nico, Nick, 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 Sorry. Nico. Uh, Nick, should, should we call you Nicholas? Oh, no, we'll call you the yeah, senator. We'll, we'll call you the senator, Nick. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. The senator. So what have you what what have you got for us, the senator? Well, the Aussies are coming. Uh, well, they're already here, actually. In, in pension superannuation world, of course, um, our, our pension funds um, are significant and growing investors in the UK globally, but also in the UK. Um, we own, um, we've been buying quite a lot of your infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure is a big area of investment um, for our pension superannuation funds. I noticed last week one of our very large pension funds um, visited um, uh, London in order to announce they were establishing a, a an office, investment office. Um, and that's quite a pattern now. Um, many of the larger mega funds, we call them, um, uh, open offices up around the world. Um, I'm currently chair of a modest uh, fund that's merging to create a $20 billion fund. So we, we don't classify that as large in Australia, but we can mm -hmm. talk about my role, um, my role in the merging of a transport and mining fund. But yeah, look, there's a lot, always a lot of different, uh, there's always a lot of uh, interest in, in the UK because of our historical colonial connections. And I think it's a little ironic that the Aussies have got one of the largest uh, superannuation pension systems in the world, and we're investing um, in the UK, but we don't see much UK investment uh, in Australia, <laughs> I've got to say. It's a bit mm. sad. Well, well, hopefully they, the Chancellor's uh, mansion house reforms um, and, you know, the drive for more productive finance will, will change all that. Like, mm. we know that they want UK pension schemes to invest in the UK, but I think we've talked on this podcast before, haven't we, Nick, about an article mm. that was um, in uh, some magazine, a publication from Southeast Asia, which was basically the, the headline was rubbing their hands that they were going to get all this UK pension scheme yeah. investment. So, um, you know, never say never, Nick. Um, you know, the Brits, are, the Brits are coming again. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> but we so, have so, such so, a low-cost system, don't we? So it's just really hard to see how UK schemes are going to allocate away from kind of just passive investments, listed markets, um, yeah. let alone, you know, physical assets um, and overseas assets. So, so Nick, are you, are you kind of uh, over here kind of helping schemes to understand uh, what that looks like and kind of how to get into the real world of investment? Yes. Yeah, look, I have caught up with a number of um, uh, providers and obviously, in today's meetings, I'll have further discussions. Um, look, I, I, you, you, what you said earlier is is uh, is correct. I mean, there's some fundamentally different structural issues in UK pensions, and it's 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 different from Australia. But I I did read um, 
um, Chancellor uh, Hunt's uh, Mansion House speech. Um, and I think, I mean, he directly referred to the Australian experience, which is great, mm. you know, good mm. to see former imperial um, power acknowledging the um, dynamism of a convict-based uh, <laughs> Australia. Um, great to see that. But, look, essentially in the UK, um, uh, you're still significantly defined benefit. Mm. Uh, secondly, you've got a lot of a lot more. You've got thousands of corporate pension funds still. You haven't got the scale. Um, uh, and I think they're really critical differences that have made it more challenging for um, UK pension funds and providers to invest in the same way that the Australian funds invest. Uh, but, you know, in, in Hunt's, um, Chancellor Hunt's speech, I di he did correctly identify some of the change that needs to occur in the UK. Um, you know, some, some of it parallels um, developments in Australia over the last uh, uh, 35 years since we established our, uh, our system in Australia. Um, and he rightly identified, um, you know, fund mergers, trustees, fiduciary duty, you know, mm. consolidation of funds. Um, we've seen massive consolidation of, of um, funds in Australia. I'm currently chair of the Transport Fund and we're merging with the Mine Workers Fund, mm. um, create a new $20 billion fund. We've seen massive consolidation, but there's a much tougher uh, focus on the fiduciary responsibilities of trustees in Australia. They have got to be very, very diligent in exercising and making decisions about the, the best the best way to invest um, the monies for the long-term benefit of the individual. And you can't mm. fall back, and it's defined contribution, you can't fall back on an employer in those circumstances. So there are some quite significant structural differences. But, you know, the UK um, should still be doing a bit better than it has been um, in equities investment, um, listed or unlisted infrastructure. It could do better. Mm. And, do you, and do you think the union funds, uh, the, the, sorry, the union influence and the industry funds is kind of part of the, the success story in Australia? Because it seems like the absence of that in the UK has led to the fragmentation maybe that we, we we have? Well, we have, I mean, the largest sector, we've got three and a half trillion dollars in the Australian system, um, and it's 160% of GDP. So you mm. have to invest overseas, that's it. But, you know, my fund, the fund I'm merging with, most of the, the, the mutual industry and their public sector and private sector um, are owned or have trustee directors appointed by employer organisations and uh, and unions. Some elect their um, uh, employee trustees. It's a good model because it's focused on the best interests of getting the highest return. And then... Um, but the funds also have uh, a range of independent expertise. I mean, I'm mm. the independent chair of uh, my fund in Australia, um, 
And um, yes, I have a number of um, union employer trustees, but there are also a number of independent directors as well with particular expertise. So it's a good model. It works. And um, I, I suppose another key difference is that your regulator's got teeth. Yeah, we had Paul Watson on um, last week, you know, and he was telling us, he was describing their sort of two strikes model. And, you know, one strike is catastrophic, two strikes, whoa, you know, you really don't want to be there. Um, you know, do, do, just looking at the UK, do you think our regulatory system is strong enough? Because I think, yes, you've got that in Australia, you've got that strong fiduciary role, but it's backed up by a strong regulator. In the UK, we seem to have the opposite of that at times. Well, you know, we, our fiduciary trustee, because I helped craft the law back in 1992-3, I actually visited the UK, it comes from the UK. But um, when I first started as a trustee back in 1986, all you had to do as a superannuation pension fund in Australia was to lodge your annual accounts, your audited accounts. Mm -hmm. Fast forward today, the regulators... Because our system is so large, you've got you've got systemic risk if a fund fails. Um, and it is true that both government and the regulators have been given additional powers. So I'm licensed, the fund's licensed, I'm individually licensed, um, fit and proper. I can be sued if I breach the law. Um, there's a whole set of reporting requirements. The fund has to lodge its investment um, plan, its business plan, its strategy, its cash flow, and the regulator is all over that sort of reporting. Mm. We have to account for our default investment returns and fees with the regulator. So there's a whole range of uh, formal regulatory requirements. I mean, the, one of the challenges in the UK is you have split, you have different regulators in, in the pension mm. system, and I think Chancellor Hunt flagged uh, having a single regulator, which I think would help. But the reality is um, uh, I, I do think um, as auto-enrolment has grown and the number of people are in a defined contribution system, there inevitably will be stronger regulation, and there should be. Mm -hmm. So so we had, as, as I mentioned, we had Paul Watson on last week, and, and um, one of the questions we asked him towards the end was, you know, we've, we've got Nick Sherry on this week. Um, <laughs> what question would you ask Nick Sherry? Yeah. Um, and um, I think it was something like, OK, you know, now that now the hat, uh, now, now you're wearing a different hat. Yeah. Um, you know, how does how does that feel in terms of, you know, you, you created a lot of the laws, you created a lot of the regulation as first um, superannuation minister at Australia. Um, now you're a trustee trying to implement a lot of this stuff and do the consolidation <laughs> stuff. You know, ha have the chickens come home to roost, Nick? <laughs> well, um, uh, having been the rooster, uh, <laughs> um, I still I still believe overwhelmingly that the level of regulation, oversight and accountability is appropriate. Keeps me on my toes as the chair of my fund, as it does does our trustees. Um, look, when you when you have a, we have a compulsory system, you have auto enrolment, so you can leave if you want and not contribute. When you have a compulsory system with 11% contributions, 
and, you know, a growing significant sum at, re at retirement for most people on top of their, their state, basic state pension. Um, you have a significant responsibility to maximise the return over the long term because you are directly impacting on the income and the lives of uh, Australians in retirement. So I think, you know, the, the, most of the regulation, uh, most of it is justified in those circumstances. And it's not just a social responsibility, delivering a higher retirement income for all Australians, um, there's a big economic responsibility because, you know, we're a massive investor in the Australian economy and increasingly investing our funds overseas. It's a very, very responsible position. Government, mm. we're at arm's length from government. We're independent from government, but we have to be held rigorously accountable. Was that sort of circular um, economy, circular investment, sort of always part of the thesis, like, you know, Australian workforce contributing to the Australian kind of capital system, or was it, is it just sort of an accident of history? It, it, it's, well, it's not an accident, but it's certainly, uh, I, I was there when we did the, comp the compulsory legislation in the parliament. I was chair of the Senate committee and I helped design and get the legislation through parliament back in 1992. I think it's fair to say that the major focus was on adding to the retirement income for low and middle Australians who had no pension, mm -hmm. private pension, on top of the basic state pension, social objective. Um, but over the years, as the system and the funds have grown, um, the economic impact, creating jobs, investing in Australia and now increasingly overseas, has become much more, much more important. I don't think that it wasn't thought about very much um, back in 1992. But uh, it, it, Australia, I think last year, for the first time in our history, Australia became a net exporter of capital. Traditionally, right. we'd yeah. always import capital to develop mm. the country. Um, and Australia became a net exporter of capital, largely because of the the compulsory uh, pension superannuation system. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Because so my sense is that the UK pension system just never had its eye on that particular ball. Certainly during my kind of pensions career. Um, so you know the the go on go on. Auto enrolment will make a difference, but it takes time. Mm. We started. Uh, 1986-87, um, I think you started, what, 10 years ago with auto-enrolment? Mm. <laughs> it takes time. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's the sort of decline of the defined benefit pension scheme coupled with rules for defined benefit accounting where essentially we have taken capital out of UK businesses and put them into government debt. That is the mm. kind of net effect. Um, and then this sort of uh, almost now balancing item of taking capital away from equities, UK, global or otherwise, um, and putting them into UK government debt. So so it will, as DC kind of rises in prominence in the UK relative to divine benefit, I think um, you're absolutely right. It, it will it will come back. Um, but I don't think when you know, Tony Blair put in some preservation requirements and, uh, you know, that we had a whole series of kind of strengthening the protections for defined benefit savers. I don't think the unintended consequences on essentially UK inward investment 
or that kind of circular economy piece was was ever thought about um i think so it's very interesting now that the chancellor is trying to pick those things up or you know a number of chancellors have it's like um and forgive forgive me here nick because i'm going to make a a comment about politicians yeah um but (laughs) but you could but you can see why that happened nico yeah because you know we had quite a lot of scandals with with our pension system you know we had the naked pensioners um, following politicians around you know the whole strips of your pensions our our pensions campaign you know you had some pretty big catastrophes and what Mm -hmm. politicians do is they they go and put that fire out and, Mm -hmm. and and that's the result of you know that's why we've got the pensions regulatory system that we that we've got and you know people weren't even thinking about the wider economics behind it it was mm-hmm. okay this is a pen this is a system that you know has got some issues we need to protect members benefits and that was the the lens that all policy decisions were made yeah what we've seen over the past year or so um is the that lens has changed you know that lens now is a lot more focused on productive finance it's a lot more focused on the real economy and you know it's the, the equilibrium is when you can when you look at things things through multiple lenses but but ultimately politics doesn't always give you the opportunity to do that yeah yeah that's absolutely right i mean i came here uh in the mid 1990s to look at the maxwell fraud scandal you may or may mm. not remember that pensions and also the massive mis-selling that occurred during that period, um, you know, mis-selling, um, uh, getting people out of uh, a good defined benefit. Um, and I learned a lot from that and we incorporated some of the lessons. So in our regulatory protections in Australia, we have full compensation in the event of theft and fraud. Mm. It's rarely ever required um, and when it is required, it's very modest in terms of the, the losses. But I actually learned from those scandals in the in, in Australia. We didn't have any protection and made sure that in our our um, regulatory framework, we had that fail-safe fallback. Because when when you make something compulsory or it's it's pensions and it's a promise for retirement. Um, it's not protection against investment volatility, but you have to protect people against theft and fraud. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right. We need to move on. Nico, yeah. you've got some news for us. Well, do you want to go first? Because I suspect uh, I, I should follow on from what you're going to say. Oh, right. Uh, well, I might change what I'm going to say now. Just oh, to, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association held, um, I think it was their ESG conference uh, last week. And there was a, a few articles that have, have come out as a result of that. Um, cost of living crisis, infrastructure and emerging markets were some of the issues discussed, according to an article that's in Pensions Expert. Uh, but what I want to uh, pick up on is that the cost of living crisis is seen as a greater priority than ESG by some pension funds, according to a survey by the PLSA. Um, the survey found the number of pension schemes committed to net zero carbon emissions has risen by 11% to 68% in the 19, last 18 months, which is good. Uh, nine out of 10 of the schemes committed to net zero had a 2050 target of net zero compliance, while 13% had a target of 2035 and 18% had a target of 2040. Again, pretty good. But the number of schemes whose focus on ESG has been had been pushed aside by other priorities, including the cost of living 
crisis increased to 30% compared with 12% in the 18 months previously. So we've, we've talked about surveys before, um, <laughs> the surveys, surveys and, you know, statistics and damn lies and or put those, <laughs> word, put those words in, in whatever order you want. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that because, you know, the, you know, the cost of living stuff is real. Um, it is obviously uh, a priority for schemes. I know um, from a number of schemes I talk to, um, people are worried about opt-outs and not mm. just opt worried about opt-outs in the auto-enrolment sense, but they're worried about opt-outs in um, from DB schemes. Um, so, you know, that is on, on people's minds. We haven't seen, you know, I don't think we've seen massive um, opt-outs or cessations. Um, yeah. But you, you just don't know where inflation is going and, you know, how some of the real economic impacts of the last couple of years are going to bite over the next few months or so. So, you know, probably one to watch. Um, but, you know, again, like, you know, a sort of slightly negative headline, but some good news in that as well, because, you know, some of that survey certainly shows some schemes going in the right direction. Yeah, I thought I thought that's a really interesting um and you can see how I might might segue to what I want to talk about. But um, uh, just on the, how, how I, do you... I, I, I didn't disappoint you, did I, Nick? No, you didn't at all. Um, you, you delighted me, Darren. So, um, but, but you know, the action space of a scheme uh, worrying about in, inflation um, and the action ski, space of a scheme worrying about ESG are probably quite different. Um, well, you'd so, think so, wouldn't you? So how one could sort of push the other off the or down the pecking order I, I i i find quite a strange sort of comment i suspect it's a sort of survey question design and response thing um because as you say you know to talk about inflation you're probably talking about opt-outs you might be talking about kind of equity risk and asset allocation uh but to talk about uh, esg you're probably talking to managers about what they do um you might be talking to index construction about what they do so it's a very different you know it's not like you're going to those managers and saying what about inflation could you do more about inflation um, exactly yeah. and it's not like Just, you're going to members and saying could you do more about esg so it, it, it seemed like an interesting kind of contrast well well, well it's um it, it depends who you ask <laughs> and it depends who um who feels in the survey because if you feel someone if you if someone uh, from the investment side of the business feels the survey in you're going to get a very different answer to someone from the yeah know, but, um, as but, as... but the question darren is probably like what is your priorities and you know so you just yeah. get a sort of linear list um and then you know something has declined yeah. since last year then you yeah, 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 yeah you know yeah, we, yeah. we get to write an article about it we we, we, um, we love surveys we love surveys don't we? okay what's your um, segue well um i just wanted to talk a little bit about those kind of net zero uh discussions so um i don't know i'm still kind of on the fence with the pension schemes going for net zero thing um so you know the planet is going for net zero 2050 and yep. um that that discussing that can be my segue um if you want to go ahead of that as a pension scheme then you're essentially saying i'm going to divest from the emerging markets and the real economy that's what you're saying or i'm going to buy meaningless carbon offsets to pretend that i have so i kind of don't get pension schemes going ahead of that unless they are let's say ifm 
or you know a huge super scale you know when you're in the 100 billion category then maybe you own some manufacturing plant that you yourself can turn around and make a net zero company um so as a sort of as a passive investor as a kind of listed markets investor um being ahead of the curve here just means essentially taking asset allocation bets but it's mm. not going to warp it's not going to warm the planet by less um because the planet this is unfortunately a global commons um so yeah when i was uh at, at the people's pension you know so we we resisted net zero we resisted make my money matter um on the basis of saying look we are paris aligned um we allow the ipcc and cop and the scientists to determine um what dangerous temperature rises look like um we we have to work within those carbon budgets that go through various kind of filtering mechanisms and integrated assessment models um and um you know what we do is is is, is react to those um and there's a danger that we we perceived which is that if you make these targets say 2035 does that make you super busy in 2034 and do nothing until then? Mm. Um, so actually giving ourselves targets to work on in 2023 is far more important than some sort of destination, which is very dependent on a huge number of kind of assumptions and paying people who do models to do models. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely on the fence as to essentially these sort of uh, these institutional claims to being kind of like, carbon neutral or, or carbon progressive when you're just part of a global economy which is is not um slightly i don't know are supers kind of going down the net zero route are they kind of burnishing their climate credentials yeah look firstly um consideration of esg and let's not forget it's not just about the e and net carbon net carbon zero it's it's about governance and social issues, modern slavery, those sorts of issues as well. Um, I don't see, if you're a long-term, medium long-term investor, um, I don't see that um, there's, there's, they're mutually exclusive. If you're a long-term mm -hmm. investor, you do have to consider the ESG factors that, that you know, can adversely affect on your business because it will come back to you uh, and uh, hurt your return. So they're not mm. mutually exclusive. Having said that, I mean, there's a huge, uh, people, you know, people have quite differing views um, on some environmental issues or social or governance issues. Mm. At the end of the day, trustees have a fiduciary duty to work out what is in the best interests of their members as a whole. Mm. Um, in, in Australia, not just the superannuation funds, all financial institutions, there's a range of, of uh, different um, laws um, uh, on reporting, uh, on moving to net zero, um, etc., cetera, uh, that funds do have to consider when they're investing. Having said that, of course, I mean, it's politically very controversial. We've had a long debate about carbon pricing in Australia with reversals of policy. Mm. Um, you know, conservative governments take a more conservative view in Australia. Um, and the Green, the Green Party in Australia, which is significant, you know, wants a hell of a lot more done 
in the political policy environment, a lot of uncertainty, which doesn't help. But the bottom line is financial institutions in Australia do have regard for ESG issues because, you know, it, it affects where you invest. However, you know, most of the pension funds um, don't divest. We, mm. we don't divest. We stay the course. We remain investing in coal and gas, for example. Australia is the, the largest exporter or the second largest exporter of coal and gas in the world uh, overseas um, to countries like India and China. Um, and they give good returns. And we're not going to sell out of those assets uh, at a knockdown price to someone who doesn't give a damn about any mm. sort of ESG. ESG. Um, so you have to constantly monitor the long-term um, impact. And I think you've got to be practical about it. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. chair of the Transport Fund merging with the Mine Workers Fund. And we've got uh, forty or 50,000 workers in the coal industry in Australia yeah, for export. Yeah. export. Yeah. But, you know, would you invest in a, in a thermal coal power station in Australia? Because, you know, that, that is in rapid decline. No, you wouldn't. There'll be a transition. But um, most of our funds continue to, uh, to, to invest and engage mm. to change. But, you know, there is an ongoing debate and some people want a pure, clean world yesterday. Yeah. They want yeah. it yesterday. And it is it is challenging when you've got such divergent views. I think the, you know, one of the most powerful contributions our super funds have had in Australia is on governance. Going, mm. they, vote their, they vote their shares. They vote their shares at AGMs. We've just had a massive set of scandals in Qantas, our airline, and it wasn't just the individual shareholders. The super funds turned up and gave, a, I think, an 83% negative vote to the board on its performance and said, if you don't, you know, if you don't uh, improve, you're gone next year. First uh, strike. And, and, and Nick, was that the super funds voting the shares, yeah, or was it the asset managers doing it but, but on their behalf? Because in the UK, a lot of this stuff is delegated or has been delegated. Yeah. Overwhelmingly in Australia now, we used to delegate to the asset managers. So, you know, my fund um, 10, 15, 20 years ago would have delegated to the asset managers. We pass over for investment externally. We don't internally invest like a, lo a lot of the bigger funds, but we vote our shares. We do vote mm. our shares. Uh, and overwhelmingly, that's the case in Australia. And I think that has a very strong impact on mm. ESG factors because um, obviously there are other owners of um, businesses in Australia, but the superannuation funds are so large and, you know, um, have significant shareholdings. Uh, there are proxy advisors. You know, we consult my, my fund. Our investment people consult with other funds every time there's an annual general meeting in a significant business with unjustifiable bonuses or mm -hmm. no attention. Uh, we've had scandals. Leo had a scandal when it destroyed some uh, Aboriginal caves when it was mining. That was, you know, that was a big issue. Uh, and, and the funds voted their shares. Mm. Um, and you vote your shares by expressing a first strike against the board 
And if, you know, if, if they haven't, um, uh, you know, re reformed and responded to that sort of critical analysis, then a second strike means the whole board goes. So that that's had a very a strong impact, I think. And it will have an impact on going, but I think in a gradual, practical way uh, on, on, on the environmental issues. My last point is we are talking about net zero. We're not talking about zero. So there will continue to be businesses that do put carbon into the atmosphere, but there'll be other businesses that take it out. We're not going to zero. Um, we, we're going to net zero, and a lot mm. of people are missing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let me let me segue. So um, I'm out in Dubai for the uh, for COP. Uh, so COP28 we've reached now. Um, so uh, this is this is obviously the continuation of the Paris Agreement. And some people might remember Glasgow. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is the, the kind of world jamboree of governments um, hoping to kind of write policies between themselves to to seek to limit global warming. Um, obviously, there's. I think it's quite a controversial one. Um, so uh, uh, the uh, president of COP is also the CEO of an oil company that's uh, raised a few hackles. Um, he made some. Um, I don't know. It's one of those sort of. I, I sort of felt it. You know, it could be lost in translation type comments um, about uh, you know needing to keep fossil fuel fuels going, or we'd be going back to the caves. Um, which I think uh, what's what's really interesting is the sort of uh, the div divisiveness of this COP between I think climate change activists and uh, you know governments and, and and kind of power and money um, and uh, yeah so I'm out here I'm out uh, to uh, kind of see what's going on I'm, I'm off to the green zone uh, which is where the sort of public entry part of the uh, the COP is. Um, so I'll, I'll go straight off after this. Um, and yeah, I, I, I was sort of reflecting on that point around, you know, is this, so I flew out here, right? So there's a sort of instant hypocrisy challenge. Um, you're getting um, all my you're getting all my cracks in first, Nikkei. Oh no, go on. You put your you put the brick back to me, mate, and then let me You were in full flow. Carry on. So there's there's obviously a sort of hypocrisy challenge. There's a hypocrisy of you know having global climate summits and therefore the whole planet has to fly to a place to do it. Um, obviously, then there's the the kind of oil company, oil state um, of Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. So, um, but to me, this is the sort of maturation and growing up of the process. Um, I, I think there is a sort of, there is definitely part of the kind of green lobby who would much rather be kind of right and lacking in influence than sort of having to dilute their messaging and kind of deal with the real world rail politique. Um, but have influence. Um, and I think there's a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a kind of lash out from that community. Who, oh, you know, I was there in COP1 when there was only five of us and nobody cared. Um, but, um, you know, this will be huge. There'll be 100,000 people here, um, hopefully talking about kind of limiting climate change. I mean, the big topics for this COP are, I mean, the top headline is sort of like, is 1.5 alive? Um, so uh, 1.5 degrees of warming, uh, basically, the IPCC, so the sort of scientists view that that's um, the kind of highest safe amount of warming that we should be going for. 
Um, and beyond that, you start to worry about uh, tipping points, so essentially the climate kind of running away. Things like melting the um, the ice sheets, um, which then reduces how much sunlight we reflect back into space, and therefore kind of you get this kind of runaway uh, warming effects potentially. Mm. Um, and likewise, the tundra and methane. So, so will we keep 1.5 alive? I mean, spoiler alert: no. 1.5 is dead, um, dead, dead, dead. So um, we need to be uh, kind of working out how how we can, you know, come to some sort of uh, safe stopping point. Um, uh, you know, the, the 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 lot of the debate will be then about um, so there's very nuanced wording um, around phase out or phase down of things like coal. So Nick, you mentioned um, Australia as a coal exporter. Um, obviously, countries who are both burning and selling coal um, are very keen on it. It's a, it's been the backbone of electrification. Um, so uh, I think. Uh, India is the third largest uh, emitter of carbon dioxide mm. um, and has said essentially its net zero target will be 2070. Right. Um, and um, uh, I can't remember exactly which countries, um, but a number of them are, 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 don't want the word phase out. They want phase down when we're talking about fossil fuels, um, which, um, you know, interesting kind of semantics that goes through these kind of global global conferences. Um, a lot of focus on energy transition. Um, so that's the kind of day that I'm going to at the, at the, at the green zone in a, in a minute or two. Um, and then um, things like the loss and damage fund. So essentially the compensation for the victims of climate change coming from mm. essentially the emitters. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of first money was put into it by the US the other day. Um, the amount of money is like literally nothing. Um, it's millions of dollars when trillions are needed. Um, but I think it's sort of the point is to prove out the structure. Um, and um, so I, I think there will be forward progress in the in the conference. I think most of the reaction by those people in the particularly in British media covering it will be that it is a bad conference, um, says he on day six out of 14 or something. Um, but that's that's sort of my sense of where the compromises now sit. Um, but I think there will be under that sort of top top line um, some some forward progress. And is it fast enough? Probably not. Um, but hopefully on these sort of victories in the next couple of weeks, there'll be, uh, you know, future future progress to come. So, yeah, I'm out here to sort of participate in the experience. And I am fascinated. I'm fascinated anthropologically as much as uh, as a climate scientist. Well, well, we'll have to sort of uh, pick you up on um, you know, the outcome of that. Um, you know, when we do our next podcast, Nico, it'll be um, it'll be good to hear. You know, is there is there Nick, um, Senator, Senator, is there um, is is there is 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 there a lot of chat about COP um, in Australia at the moment? Um, yeah, well, there is, and there always is. Um, a significant public discussion debate about COP when it happens, but also about the ESG, mm. uh, the transition to zero. I mean, it's probably certainly one of the most significant policy debate discussion, not just amongst politicians, but in the community. Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I recall when I was the first trustee back in 86, 87, um, uh, as a trustee, we didn't even discuss, well, I suppose we didn't know 
about a lot of the ESG issues and come forward today, um, my the the board of the transport uh, fund and our investment committee we we discuss it at every meeting. So, um, I mean, I, I have a pretty simple well, I hope a simple but realistic approach to all of this. It's important to price pollution and remove it from the environment. It's really important to price pollution and carbon going into the environment um, uh, is 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 a form of pollution. And it's just in the same way we used to throw our rubbish and sewage into the streets. Mm-hmm. We polluted the environment. We introduced a charge to collect it and remove it from the environment so we would live healthier lives. And, I mean, interestingly, London was the first city in the world to do that mm-hmm. because of the impact of human beings on the on other human beings and on the broader environment and i just have a i have a bottom line quite simple principle that you have to price pollution and remove it from the environment now that's a simple uh, perspective how you do it and implement it is enormously complex mm. but i don't want to see um the environment polluted um uh, uh and you you need to get that pollution out of the environment. I mean, I get really upset about water bottles, plastic mm. water bottles. You know, people buying plastic water bottles when you can get the water from a tap, uh, and the and the and the plastic being thrown out, you know, into the environment. I get really upset about that and soft plastics and what that's doing. So, so you got price pollution to get it yeah. out of the environment. Yeah, and no, I, I I agree with that, and 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 I think that having agreement around the principles of it yeah and how we're going to tackle this on a global scale and then working out the details is the way to go i think quite often we we end up sort of down in the weeds discussing the how without creating the alignment on what we're actually trying to achieve so i'm going to do a random shout out now yeah because yeah. i lo- i liked what you said about plastic bottles and i use this web browser called ocean hero so if you if you search on Ocean Hero, um, then basically um, you get these credits, which are shells and water bottles and stuff. Um, and for every search, you get um, so many points. And once you have collected 100 sh- shells, um, you take a bottle of water out the ocean. So obviously, you know, it's powered by advertising and and, and stuff like that. But it's um, yeah, it's I'm, I'm sure it's just like Google. Um, nice pictures of sea lions I'm looking at at the moment. Um, but, yeah, I just thought it was quite a, a, a nice thing. So it's something I, you know, I do. So that's Ocean Hero. If you want to take some bottles out of the ocean. OK, no um, excuse, guys. Right. So we need to <laughs> we need we need to move on. Um, yeah. And there's so much we could talk about, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of that. So, um, Nick Sherry, um, accidental Brit, um, <laughs> you know, um, fake Australian. Um, how did you get into pensions? Well, it's an interesting uh, and rather odd story. I My first major job um, in working life was working in a casino, hotel casino. And when we, um, and of course we had no uh, hotel workers, casino workers, restaurant workers, had no pension, private pension, superannuation. And so um, 
back in um, back in the mid 1980s, when I was what the tender age of about 25, 26, um, and Host Plus, which is the big multi-employer fund in hospitality, was being established. It uh, and I and I was asked to be a founding trustee and help establish the fund. Um, uh, someone at the time observed that I'd worked in a in a uh, hotel casino and I knew how people lost money, and I should <laughs> I should make a good I, I'd make a good trustee on Host Plus and was a founding trustee and helped set the fund up. Um, but I was I was given you know, a very severe warning that um, make sure we don't lose money in our fund because <laughs> it was early days. And, of course, Host Plus, you know, I can remember the third or fourth trustee meeting when we had $50 million. Today, Host Plus has about $105 billion. So that's how I got involved. And once, once I was a trustee of Host Plus, there's so many aspects Obviously, the bottom line is improving the retirement income of Australians. But you've got issues around investment. You've got issues around technology administration, governance, um, management. There's so many aspects to uh, a pension fund or a superannuation fund, and it's always fascinated me. Um, and then when I moved into politics, I continued to focus um on legislation and laws and then became the minister. And then when I retired from politics um, 11 years ago, I've had a range of roles with um, Citigroup, EY, FNZ, um, big platform provider. I'm advising on, um, uh, I'm on the advisory board of some asset managers. But it, and, then, and then just in the last year, come back as chair of the transport fund, merging with the mine workers fund. So, I, you know, my entire work career has had some particular work aspect to do with a superannuation or pensions. It's it's really interesting. But the bottom line is I think you're helping lift up low and middle income Australians, battlers, uh, and improving their life for retirement. That's the bottom line. Yeah. So Nick, how did you how did you get into politics? I mean, so were you hoping to do superannuation work, or because that must have been quite presumably you can't do that all the time. You you've been in and out of power. You've been on the different kind of parts yeah. of the benches. So so uh, how do you keep those kind of things in perspective? And you know, what 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 kind of started you on that path? Oh look, I, I, my father was in um, was in politics, um, and I always had an interest in politics of Labor. Um, Labor member. Um, I mean, it's complex, but I'd always wanted to be involved in politics and public policy. Mm -hmm. And when I went into into the Senate in 1990, I suppose I was fortunate because I was one of the few then that had had any experience with superannuation, been a trustee. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing I learned in politics is, um, you know, as much as you'd like to, you can't change the world. You've got to focus, I think you've got to focus in an area where you can make a difference. And for me, given my background uh, before I went into the Senate and politics, um, I thought I could make a difference. 
um, in superannuation regulation and contribution and helping build the system. I gave the example earlier. I came to the UK in the early 90s to look at the protections against theft and fraud. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally made sure we had protections against theft and fraud in our superannuation legislation. And I'm very proud of that. Um, you can make a difference, but you've got to focus in a particular area. You can't change the world. And it's always been, it's got so many aspects, it's, it, it just interests me and you're making a difference to people's lives ultimately. Mm, yeah. Great. Um, and sorry, Dan, I cut you off. I wasn't. Uh... Yeah, I was going to ask exactly the same question. Um, so obviously, we've <laughs> been months. doing this for this doing this for far too long. Um, I so, so you're um you you were senator for Tas Tas Tasmania. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, David Harris would never forgive me if I don't mention cricket somewhere in this podcast. So, so what's your local cricket team? Oh, well, I live in a in a in a a city, small city called Devonport in northern Tasmania. So that's the local cricket team. Uh, Tasmania, yeah. we have states, obviously. Tasmania has its own uh, cricket team with a smaller state. does pretty well, actually, particularly yeah. in the one-dayers. But we, we won't talk about um, the recent uh, – well, we should – no, I'm happy to talk about the recent uh, – <laughs> Go on, how about – go on. Well, give, give, give us your best shot, Nick. Give us your best shot. Oh, look. Look, again, I'm a modest Australian, a modest Tasmanian. You know, Australia does well, um, but you don't always win. You don't always win. You learn the lessons and uh, prepare to win, hopefully, and, uh, you know, improve yourself. Um, but I'm an Australian rules fan for the Geelong okay. Football Club, yeah. my, my the passion. Um, but Australia's a big soccer country now. You know, when I grew up as a kid, soccer wasn't a game, but, you know, um uh so um uh look um uh in, in cricket uh you know um it's a sight it, it you know the wheel does turn england will be back on top you know yeah, hopefully in 20 well, <laughs> Aussie rules is a brutal game, isn't it? It's um, it's oh, yeah. a cross between rugby, uh, American football. But but what's always amazed me about Aussie rules is they play it on these lovely, nice cricket pitches and just churn up the pitch. And how they get the pitches yeah. sort of suitable for cricket um, when the seasons change, I, I you know that's a that's a black art that is. But <laughs> yeah, Aussie rules is an extraordinary. You've got to be an incredible athlete. Because you've got to you tackle, you've got to run, you've got to jump. Do you know, in an in an average game, a, an average player will run fifteen to twenty kilometres. Wow, yeah. fifteen to twenty kilometres. Uh, you've got to have stamina. I took my stepfather to a he was Canadian to a, an Aussie Rules game, and at um, at uh, quarter time, quarter time, he said, "Oh, he said, I'm glad." He was amazed just how they tackle each other. He was used to American football. He said, where's their protection, Nick? There's no, they're not wearing any hats. And, and I said to him, look, you know, you you weak American Canadians, you, you know, protection. Um, uh, but secondly, at quarter time, he said, oh, well, I'm glad the game's half over. He said, I don't know how they can keep keep up this, keep, keep up this pace and and tackling. And I said, 
it's not half time. There's another three quarters to go. He couldn't believe it. Um, it's a great game, but it's very entertaining. But unfortunately, most people outside Australia don't understand it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've seen it a few times um, and it always looks uh, quite interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a good, yeah. well, a good, 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 good segue away from the cricket, away from the yeah, cricket, yeah, which yeah. is which is good. So um, we know you're on a hard stop, Nick. Um, you're over in the UK doing lots of meet and greets, um, talking about some of the big policy challenges, and the, the central theme of this podcast, as you know, is value for money. So, what does value for money mean to you? To me, it is maximising the return uh, and the balance or the pot value after fees and charges, um, maximising that value in order to improve the, um, the living standards, circumstances, the income of people in retirement. That's so, what it's all about. So, so that is, inc- that, well, it, unsurprisingly, that's pretty much what Paul said um, last week. Um, when we touched on this, is there that sort of overriding consensus in Australia that if we, you know, if we lined 100 Australian, um, you know, professional pensions people up, yeah, would the vast majority of them give a similar definition for value for money? Yes, yes, I I believe they would. Um, it, the, the, rightly, the fiduciary duty, the trustees, a defined contribution system is focused on a diversified, maximising the return um, uh, with the lowest after fees. You know, some fees will be higher than others. That's overwhelmingly the focus. Um, I'd be very confident. Yeah, because because you know, is is that a lesson for the UK, Nico, in some of this? Because you know, like how Nick and Paul talk is very simple. It's quite straightforward. It's incredibly measurable. Right, let's get on with it next. Um, whereas yeah. we seem to be tying ourselves up in knots on, you know, um, a lot of, okay, what does VFM mean? And, you know, which we don't mind, obviously, because it's a good <laughs> theme for this podcast and it keeps us going. But, you know, why don't we just implement something so simple? Yeah, I mean, look, so I, I guess there's a lot of vested interests in the in the UK. Um and uh, a lot of them want to talk to the fact that what their bit of the puzzle is adds mm. value, right? Um, so I, I thought the consultation as it first came out was very clear that that we were talking about returns. Mm. Um, and there's a discussion as to whether you do gross returns and then compare them to a fee or you do net yeah. returns. And, you know, that, that's, that, that's, that's very minor. Uh, sort of how you present it to the, to the members is, is where it becomes major. Um, but then there's this sort of codicil to that, which is all of the complexity. And, um, you know, that to me is where a lot of the debate seems to have been happening um, on this show, but in the market. Um, and yet it's sort of unimportant compared to just maximising the value of the, the contributions accrued. Um, so, you know, we've had uh, the debate of kind of retail versus institutional or like self-selected versus kind of defaulted. Um, that to me, I think, is a critical framing of the question that that we haven't got right mm. in this country um, because essentially the, the, the conservative governments have wanted to pretend that people 
uh, let's say, have the attention to make good choices continuously. Um, and, you know, we know from our behavioural finance that even if they have the skill set, they certainly don't have the attention to do that. Um, yep. And, you know, that therefore some of the costs that go with engaging people about those choices, um, engaging people with choices that they probably are unlikely to make. So, you know, in a cost of living crisis, upping their contributions, um, all of those costs land on people who don't make those choices. And mm. we therefore need to have a framework to discuss the kind of value for money without them. So, yeah. yeah. I think the clarity, it would have been helpful, and maybe we'll see this under, uh, you know, post the general election, whichever party comes into power, um, that we'll get a sort of boiling down of that kind of VFM down to those, it's return stupid yeah. type narrative that we yeah. heard from the yeah. Aussies, and it's very clear. Yeah. yeah, but I don't want to give the wrong impression. Now, I'm, I've always been careful coming to, to London and the UK. The Australian system's extraordinarily complex, Mm-hmm. And we debate all of these issues uphill and mm-hmm. down. Uh, we've made mistakes. Important to learn from the mistakes, but also, um, you know, uh, despite our common sort of ancestral heritage, there are significant differences in Australian society and economy from the UK. And you know what can work in Australia or the UK doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. work in the other country. And I don't want to give the impression we've got a perfect system. In my view, we haven't. It's too complicated, too many options in the system. Mm-hmm. Touching on that issue you mentioned about, you know, making informed decisions. I mean, the reality is most people, my kids, I've talked to them about superannuation. They're in, they're in uh, a fund. They're not interested in retirement. They don't want to hear yeah. about retirement until their 50s or 60s. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, um, uh, there's a, you know, there's a, just like the UK, Australia's had lots and lots of uh, different debates, discussions. We've got lots of vested interests. Mm-hmm. Um, I just try and keep it simple and focused on um, uh, improving the living standards and income of um, of uh, people the system was built for and created, which is seven out of ten Australians who had no uh, additional pension other than the state pension. Why should they miss out? It was unfair. Yeah. So, so, so we, 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 we're rapidly running out of time, and I know you've got to, you've got to go. Um, but but my one question I've got, and Nico, you can have one as well, um, is stapling. You talk about choice. You talk about, um, um, you know, member engagement. You know, people don't engage. They talk about their pension, you know, in their 50s, 60s. You know, we, we're now talking pop for life. We're talking stapling. You know, it's all a bit undefined at the moment. Um, you know, yeah. what, what, what are the main lessons from a UK perspective, if the from an Australian perspective, uh, for the UK, if the UK were to go down this route? Well, you've got to solve the problem. It's a significant and growing problem when you have multiple accounts accruing, and most people, uh, well, a lot of people don't consolidate in Australia. Mm. You could, and they forget they've got the, they forget they've got the pot where it is. So we started off with a sort of central registration through our tax office. <laughs> I'm a great advocate. I don't agree with stapling. Um, uh, to be stapled to your first account means the fund where you, in the industry you first worked, i.e. when you're a younger worker, has a, has a advantage. Mm. So 
um, and that to me is wrong. Um, I do it, agree. It was good for host plus. Have, well, it's great for host plus and rest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they have an advantage over my transport fund because I've got in the main, you know, truckies start work as truckies in their mid late twenties. Mm. Um, so why should they, if they, and many of them would have worked in a hotel or a restaurant or a shop part-time when they were younger, why should they be flicked into host plus or rest? So I don't agree with stapling. There are other ways to solve the problem, mm. auto consolidation, exchange mm-hmm. of data and, and consolidation of accounts, which is competitively neutral. That's that's what I would advocate. Um, I've had discussions with DWP about this over a number of years. Actually, I met with them yesterday and we had a good talk about this. Yeah, there's a great article actually by Rob Yule from the ABI, the Association of British Insurers, um, that appeared in Pensions Expert um, uh, yesterday, I think it was, where, you know, he, he sort of talks about pot for life, what are the knock on effects. Um, but one of the things, the reason I mention it is because you've, you've got to you've got to highlight what you're actually talking about sometimes yeah because I think people uh, are using terminology in in different ways so pot for life doesn't yeah. necessarily mean stapling yeah um stapling doesn't Correct. mean it doesn't mean that there's a you know there can't be a duty on the employer to say yes people can choose where their contributions actually go and I think that you know in the in the rush to comment in the rush to get things out we lose some of the nuances um within within the debate because we're talking about cross we're talking about cross purposes it's what we do with cdc all the time let's be yeah. honest yeah um not to shoehorn cdc in so late in well, the well podcast, done well but, done but, um, you know. i'll just make another comment so because so, uh, one of the things that and maybe i'll just segue into a question so, so one of the things we've talked about a lot is trying to i guess depoliticize pensions so at the moment uh, you know, we've we've had 13 years of um, and one government, but like so many different pensions policies within that one government. Yeah. Um, so even just kind of just tracing the history has meant we've kind of torn up things um, that we've introduced in in kind of recent history. So so the great success of the UK system was the Pensions Commission in 2007, six something like that. Um, uh, it's, uh, 2002 to 2005. Oh, is it? Yeah. So the and then the Pensions Act 2008, um, where we had essentially consensus as to what needed to be done. How does the does the Aussie kind of uh, regulation or legislation kind of models have that kind of cross party consensus? So that are, are both parties kind of on the same page? If even if you agree, disagree over the details, is that kind of broad themes that both parties agree on? Oh, look, we didn't have consensus when we introduced a compulsory defined contribution system. I mean, it was strongly opposed by our, you know, Liberal Conservative Party. They were going to scrap it, but they, it was, I mean, it turned out to be popular. It was one of the mm-hmm. issues. But then Labor government survived and ultimately, you know, six years on, the practical approach was from a then Conservative Liberal Party who were subsequently elected to keep the system. To keep compulsion, but they, you know, they have philosophical positions around um, uh, so-called choice, letting individuals do their own thing, um, and that leads to a whole set of other issues around safety, regulation, effective uh, decision making. But um, uh, you know, look, 
and, and I warn people often um, colleagues saying, look, can't we just have government stop making change to the system? But the reality mm -hmm. is when you've got a system underpinned by both um, concessional tax treatment and compulsory or auto-enrolment, government is going to be very, very interested yep. in where the money is invested. That's the reality. It doesn't yep. matter who's in government. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to end it there, Nico. Yeah. Uh, Nick, so, it's been fantastic to speak to you. I know you have to rush off. Um, so delighted to have you and to, to, to share our 50th uh, episode you've been our sorry. 46th guest and at our 50th episode so thank you so much for coming on thank you and th thank you for the time thank you for the time great to to chat to you about um the many and varied aspects of the world of mm. pensions or superannuation ciao okay thank you very much um yeah good to see you have a good time in the uk um you know do lots of lobbying share your experiences <laughs> and until next time it's bye from me it's bye from me, Nick. Bye from me, thanks. Thank you.